This afternoon, we'll be looking at the doctrine concerning the Lord's Supper, what we teach concerning the Lord's Supper. And in connection with that, we'll be reading from Matthew 26, looking specifically at the verses 26 to 29. Matthew 26, the verses 26 to 29. And you'll be able to find that on page 1145 of your pew Bible, on the very bottom. So Jesus has just gathered together with his disciples. They're eating the Passover in an upper room. The Passover feast, the Jewish festival to celebrate being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And we read, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So far, we'll be looking together at two Lord's Days today. Lord's Days 28 and 29, and you'll be able to find Lord's Day 28 on page 542 of your book of praise. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? First, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, Yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit as the members of the body are by one soul. Where has Christ promised that he will nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat of the broken bread and drink of the cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul where he says, The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of the sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs and remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, not too long ago, we were working our way through the sacraments in a more general sense in the Heidelberg Catechism. First, it starts with speaking about them in a general sense, and then it narrows in on baptism, and now it's narrowing in on the Lord's Supper. For those of you who are here, you might remember that we spoke about them as comparing, as comparing them to a seal. We talked about how they were a seal. Historically, many government documents have had seals attached to them. The ruler would write the decree, then melt a puddle of wax on the document, and finally put a stamp on it using either a ring or an impression to leave a mark behind on the wax. One example of this was the Magna Carta, the Great Charter. And this seal that was attached to it put a stamp of authority on the document itself, guaranteeing these as rights for the people. The seal, of course, has no authority in and of itself. Any of you kids in the congregation could make seals in your mom's kitchen. But would that mean that if you poured it on your homework, suddenly your homework has the authority of a royal decree? No. A seal only has as much authority as the people who are behind it. But when the person who is behind it does have authority, the seal is something to be reckoned with. Because it points to the fact that that decree that it is attached to has very real authority. But its authority is accompanied by something. Faith in that authority. Unless you believe in the authority of the seal, it won't be of any help to you. This afternoon, we'll see how this plays out in connection with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we'll see this under the following theme and points. Through the Lord's Supper, we receive a sign and a seal that we share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. And we'll see, first of all, what we receive and secondly, how we respond. For many of you, as you've been reading your way through the Bible over the course of the years, in which, which is the case for many of you, you come to be aware of the central role that Jesus plays in the Bible. He's the focus of it all. 
We can see this especially coming to the fore in Luke 24, verse 25 and following, how Jesus himself explains it. We read there, then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? He's speaking on the road to Emmaus after his crucifixion. He's been resurrected again. He says, ought the Christ not to have suffered all these things and enter into his glory? He's saying you should have expected this if you had read the prophets and understood the prophets, the Old Testament. And then we read, and beginning at Moses, so that's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. He explained to them everywhere in scripture where it pointed back to him. And we can see the truth of this when we look back to the Old Testament ourselves. It might be more obvious in direct references to Christ, like the psalm about crucifixion, Psalm 22, or the prophecy that he would carry our sins on his shoulders by his suffering in passages like Isaiah 53. But as we spend more and more time in Scripture, we can see it coming to the fore in other passages in Scripture as well. When we go through God's Word, page by page, realizing that Christ is actually pointed to in every part of the Bible, it opens a whole new world into our understanding of Scripture. And nowhere does this become clearer than in the New Testament. Like the saying goes, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. All of Scripture has Christ at its center. But to understand this connection, we come to the New Testament and see how it is explained all through the Old Testament. And this comes to its apex in the Gospels. All of Scripture, both old and new, come to their apex there because all of the Old Testament was pointing to the life of Jesus Christ that we find in the Gospels. And then in the New Testament, of course, pointing back and explaining different aspects of it, different connections. The Gospels are the summit of the mountain, describing the life, the crucifixion, and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're the pinnacle of history. The pinnacle of our history, too. All of humanity's hope rests on these roughly three decades of Christ's life that the Gospels speak about around the turn of history. All of humankind's hope rests on this point when time itself was split in two, into B.C. and A.D., the era before God coming, into the wor- coming to the earth in flesh and the years of Christ following his incarnation. Now, I want you to understand the importance of this and how it connects to our Lord's Day today. Think about this for a moment. If the high point of history is Christ's coming in the flesh, and if Christ's suffering and death on the cross for our sins was the most integral point of his ministry here on earth, then it means that that point should have a significant impact on us today. Think about it. If you truly believe that the Bible is true, and that Jesus Christ, what he said and did was real, 
then this one moment in time is the most important moment in the world for all of mankind, from the dawn of humanity until the last day where the earth is consumed in fire. If this is the case, if this is the case, then the act that commemorates this moment in history, this moment on which all of time hangs for humanity, the act which commemorates this moment in history takes on much more significance. We're somber when we take our moment of silence on November 11 to commemorate the death of those who fell in different wars. We're joyful when we commemorate the birthday of our country on July 1st with fireworks and celebration. How much more should we be both solemn and joyful when we commemorate the suffering and death of Christ in the Lord's Supper? This moment which has significance not only for one person or for one nation, but which has reshaped the very fabric of eternity for humanity across the ages. These words which we read, which we just read in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. These words guide us to look to this very moment in time. They guide us to look to it every time that we raise the cup of wine at the Lord's Supper and every time we lift up the bread and echo the words of Christ, take, eat, this is my body. Every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what does this mean then? What does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes by the Lord's Supper? And what does it mean? How does it impact us personally? The Heidelberg Catechism describes it beautifully and succinctly in these words. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Again, this is exactly what Christ himself tells us in Matthew 26. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And we see that confirmed in Luke 22, verses 19 to 20, which uses slightly different phrasing. This is my body which is given for you and this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It wasn't just in general terms that Jesus is speaking, but it's in very real, personal language. And as certainly as a Christian's eyes confirm the reality of what is happening in front of him, that certainly can he be sure that Christ's body was given and Christ's blood was shed for him. The Catechism highlights this in more vivid language. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. 
we can taste and be fed and nourished by the bread and wine. Now, it might not be as noticeable now because we've moved away from the Lord's Supper as a full meal. But in Christ's day, this would have been a vivid reality. The Lord's Supper would have been a full-blown meal after which the people taking part in it would have walked away nourished and refreshed. Now, in the same way, Christ promises that as surely as we walk away being nourished and refreshed from a full meal, so certainly are we spiritually nourished and refreshed. Our tank is filled up again, spiritually. Every time we take part, we receive assurance of the forgiveness of sins. We receive assurance that Christ is enough and that we will never lack anything if we have him. Christ speaks of this satisfaction in John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And he promises further in verse 40, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. In taking part in Christ through the Lord's Supper, in the eating of his flesh and blood through the bread and wine, we receive full assurance that these things, which were far beyond our reach outside of Christ, these promises really and truly do apply to us personally. In Christ, this event on which the history of the world hinges becomes ours. So, having understood all of that, what do we think about everybody who takes part in the Lord's Supper then? Is everybody truly taking part in the sacrament? When they eat the bread, when they drink the wine, are they really truly taking part? The short answer is no. And this is hard. It's something that's hard to take and hard to hear. How can we say this? How is it possible? The Bible explains it in terms of this, that some people come within seeing distance of Christ, but they have never fully put their trust in him. Jesus himself speaks about this in John 6, the passage we just read, it says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But he follows that up with, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. These people have come to Christ. These crowds have come to Christ. They've come within touching distance of him. But they never took part in him because they never believed. Jesus goes on to say, All that the Father gives me, everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. 
Those who are the chosen of God will hear the word and be convicted by it. They will put their only trust in Jesus and come to him to satisfy their hungry and thirsty souls. And for some people, this takes more time. For some people, it takes less time. But for those who do not come to him, those who eventually reject his lordship and position as the only way to salvation, we read in 1 John 2 verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might, have, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. He's saying, they went out so that it might become clear to everyone that they never really were part of it, that they did not really take part in faith in Christ. Why is this the case? How can there be those that take part in the Lord's Supper but don't take part in its fullness, never sharing in the flesh and blood of Christ? This is because the Lord's Supper is a sign of the covenant. Do you remember what Jesus said? That's where we find the answer. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as it is a sign of the covenant, it means that there are two parts, because every covenant has two parts, a promise and an obligation. This is significant because it impacts the very essence of how we view the Lord's Supper. In the Roman Catholic Church, the Lord's Supper itself has the power to cleanse sin. Even if someone takes part of it in sin and unbelief, they still get benefit from it because of the fact that the bread and wine themselves have power. But what Jesus Christ is saying here is that the power of the bread and wine is conditional. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, hold on a second. What happened to salvation by grace? What happened to grace alone? You're telling me that I need to do something? It's as we read in Ephesians 2 verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. God calls you to believe and to respond in faith. This faith is and always was something that was behind the covenants in the Bible. We can see that already back in Abraham's day. Submitting to the Lord in faith was the principal act behind circumcision. As we read in Romans 4, circumcision shows us two things. First, it was a sign to Abraham validating the terms of the covenant. So it was like a stamp that showed that the covenant between Abraham and God was real. Second, it was a sign which was a seal of the righteousness which he had while he was uncircumcised to show that, yes, he believed, he was responding in faith. Now, being in the covenant didn't mean that faith was guaranteed to the people who were in the covenant. It didn't mean that they would guaranteed have faith, that this was one of the things that was promised. In fact, we already see that as early as Ishmael, Abraham's other son who received the circumcision. Did he have faith? Did he experience that inward transformation? The answer is a clear and resounding no. As with baptism, circumcision was not a seal of faith. It didn't guarantee faith. 
Rather, it's the mark that certifies the truth of God's promise that he will give righteousness to the one who has faith. For those who would reject this promise, there is another side of the coin to the promise held out by circumcision, that transgressors of the covenant would be cut off. Not everyone would enjoy the benefits offered by the sign. And baptism closely parallels this. It signifies and seals that those who believe will be washed from their sins. They will be counted righteous before God. But they are not guaranteed stamps of approval placed on us. There's a word for that. It's called covenantal automatism. The belief that a baptism means that you'll go all the way. If we reject the promises and we do not take hold of them by faith, our baptism isn't any more than a reminder of the consequences of what happens to those who reject the covenant. Thus we can see both in circumcision and in baptism that to have a place in the covenant doesn't mean that one is in fact guaranteed saved, that one is in possession of all the covenant blessings. Instead, to have a place in the covenant means that there's a requirement to respond in faith. And this requirement of a response of faith extends itself to the sign of the Lord's Supper as well. And if you don't respond in faith, then, it's lo- then you're lost. It doesn't matter how much you come to the Lord's Supper table. If you eat baskets of bread, drink rivers of wine, without faith, you're lost. And this loss isn't due to any fault in the promise. It doesn't mean that the promise itself suddenly fell short. No, instead the fault lies with the person who doesn't accept what this sacrament stands for. You can look at it this way. Compare it to having a Canadian passport. When you have a passport, the promises of that passport are real and true. The passport will allow you to travel to any country in the world and still have them recognize you as a Canadian citizen. If you are in trouble in a country, you can flee to the embassy for safety. And as long as you hold on to that passport, you will be safe. But what happens if the person doesn't believe in the power of the passport? What happens if he just throws it on the ground and tramples over it? What happens if he decides, well, this isn't really for me, and he leaves it by the nightstand and goes out? Now, you come to the border or you come to the embassy without that passport, and you demand, you hammer on the doors, and you demand that you'll be let in, what's the first thing they'll ask you for? Your passport. And if you told them that you didn't really believe in the power of the passport, would they be quick to let you in? It would set you straight pretty quickly. The promises that go with your passport are very true. The promises are very true. Legally, you share in all the benefits that being a citizen grants you. But you, and and you as a passport holder, have the full right to lay claim to these promises. But if you scorn the passport, 
then the problem is not with the promises. The problem is not with a passport. The problem is with the person who would not hold to them, who would not have faith in them. Our Lord's Supper celebration functions very much in the same way. If you don't believe in the power, if you don't believe in our great need before God, and you don't believe in Christ's great payment, how can you think that it'll be of value? As one theologian said, in fact, what mockery would it be to go in search of food when we have no appetite? Now, to have a good appetite, it is not enough that the stomach be, hung, be empty. It must also be in good order and capable of receiving its food. Hence, it follows that our souls must be pressed with famine and have a desire, an ardent longing to be fed in order to find their proper nourishment in the Lord's Supper. We must come before the Lord deeply aware of our own sins, seriously examining ourselves and coming before God aware of the great need we have for his mercy. We need to remember the two great commands, love God and love your neighbor, and reflect on that. Do we seek God? Do we honestly, urgently, ardently seek God? Or do we run from him? Do we live with our neighbor, united with him or her in friendship as a member of the same body, a member of the body of Christ, or do you live in conflict and in strife? Do you confess with your mouth and testify how indebted you are to your Savior, give thanks to him, and pray not only that you may edify others, but that you also may instruct them by your example as to what they ought to do? Now I'm sure that for many of you, for most of you, the answer would be no. No, you haven't perfectly loved God. You haven't perfectly loved your neighbor as you ought to. If your answer isn't no, in fact, that's probably an issue. But there is hope that is extended to us through the Lord's Supper as well. The Lord's Supper form phrases it this way, and these are beautiful words in the Lord's Supper form. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, think of these words. But all this, beloved brothers and sisters, is not meant to discourage broken and contrite hearts, as if only those who are without sin may come to the table of the Lord. For we do not come to this supper to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. On the contrary, we come to seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we acknowledge that we are dead in ourselves. Calvin writes of our shortcoming in this way. Assuredly, the faith in which the children of God have, the faith which the children of God have, is such that they have ever occasion to pray, Lord, help our unbelief, for it is a malady so rooted in our nature that we are never completely cured until we are delivered from the prison of the body. Our faltering, our shortcoming drives us to ever call out to God and to run to him, 
And so let us pray. Let us cry out to God saying, Lord, help my unbelief. And let us rest in the assurance that if we ask, we will receive. For what our God demands, our God also supplies. What our God demands, our God also supplies. And that is the beauty of the covenant when it comes to those who draw near to God. Because as we read in Ephesians 2 verse 8, we looked at this a moment ago. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So you need to have faith. But this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Even the faith that God requires of us, he grants it to us as a gift. So let this spur us on to use the supper to its full effect, to recognize our great need and to become ever more aware of it. Not to leave the promises by the nightstand, but to seek them eagerly and in faith because we recognize how greatly we need them. Let us be all the more eager to make our calling and election sure, striving to live for God and throwing ourselves on his mercy when we fall short in word, in faith, or in deed, because we will. Let us fall on his mercy because he is the Lord who provides. Yes, we come. When we come to the Lord's supper table, we come in fear and trembling because of our great sin. But we also know that in turning to him, in turning to him in the faith that we ask him for, we will be nourished and refreshed by the Lord's Supper. We'll be reminded again of the rich promises that we have that in Christ all of our sins are forgiven. And we will leave that table with joy and singing because we share in his one sacrifice on the cross. Amen.